0: This is the Hash podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more, with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the
2: Hash for your ears. You're listening to The CoinDesk Podcast Network.
3: Hello everybody. It's The Hash on CoinDesk TV. If you're listening to us, you're listening to The CoinDesk Podcast Network. It's The Hash for your eyes, for your ears, and for your heart. I'm Jen Sinassi. I'm joined today by Adam B. Levine and Sandali Handagama. And we are taking you all the way around the world on today's show. Sandali, you have the first story. What do you got?
2: Yes, I do. Thanks, Jen. So Central African Republic has become the second nation in the world after El Salvador, of course, to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. The National Assembly has passed and the president has signed a bill drafted by the Ministry of Digital Economy. the country has a population of 4.83 million and around 11% of that has access to the internet. So it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. But after El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender less than a year ago, there was this like big expectation, right? That other countries would follow because a lot of countries expressed the interest to do so. But that hasn't really been the case. The rush has sort of calmed and countries have been, I imagine, watching El Salvador closely. But here we are with a second country. So I'm going to toss it to you guys. What do you think of this and and what should we expect? Adam, I see you smiling, so I'm going to go with you first.
1: (laughs) So El Salvador making this move uh, last year was almost more ideological than it was, you know, something that was going to have a short term impact. And certainly many commenters, myself included, looked at that and said this is something that we're likely to see repeated but there's another part to that that other part to that is it's we're likely to see repeated assuming that it goes well right with these types of big moves there's a lot of risk that comes into play just because nobody's ever done anything like this before so when you're looking at a country especially a country that doesn't really benefit from the existing system We've seen how El Salvador has been treated in terms of how the IMF has communicated about them, how the World Bank has communicated about them. There are right now two pieces of legislation uh, with bipartisan support making their way through the House and Senate that will have uh, the U.S. conducting a study on the financial impact of El Salvador's move to the U.S. economy, which is sort of a funny thing because the U.S. economy is one that's, of course, measured in the trillions of dollars and the uh, El Salvadorian economy is measured in the tens of billions of dollars. So we're talking about a very, very small country that the U.S. in a bipartisan fashion, at a time like this, when there's so many other things to be worrying about, is thinking about seriously. So I think it's, uh, it's interesting, honestly. I was not expecting anyone to follow until we had a little bit more finality. Uh, and I think the fact that we are seeing this, and especially out of Africa, which is, I think, not a place. Uh, not a, a continent that we expected to see this. I was expecting this more from South America, um, you know, uh, maybe uh, some Asian nations. Uh, but uh, so I, I think it's a very interesting move. I, I haven't had a chance to read the bill yet. And I think that that's really where a lot more information about this will come out. What did they actually pass? Because there's a lot of ways that you could do this. And I think that, again, until we get our eyes on that, I don't know if anybody else has had a chance to review it yet. Uh, you know, we're really not going to know exactly what they did outside of kind of this headline figure. Jen, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I wasn't surprised to see this come out of Africa. So I used to live in South Africa. I know South Africa as a tiny, very westernized part of the African continent. But when I lived there, I was a journalist and I observed a really advanced adoption of fintech, more so than in North America. And there was a real use case for peer-to-peer transactions. There wasn't really a barrier when it came to mobile phones and internet access and, and products like Mpeza were really, really taking off in villages where maybe they didn't have access to the traditional banking system. So there's been innovation in this space happening a lot in Africa. What I zeroed in on here, it was that 11% of the population have access to mobile devices with an internet connection here. So not only is there a technology barrier, but What that tells me is there is also an access to information barrier, right? If we don't have access to the internet, how do we do our own research? How do we educate ourselves about this new technology that maybe we don't have a lot of information about? And so I wonder what the government is going to do to help bridge that. I hope that we see some infrastructure set up, uh, more affordable uh, data set up there. So I look forward to seeing that. I think about when El Salvador launched and there was a real light shone on the actual legislation. And I also haven't had a chance to read the legislation that came out of this. But there was that one piece that said every single business in El Salvador must accept Bitcoin. And that was a really polarizing topic. Then the Salvadoran president kind of rolled that back in a series of tweets. It was never actually rolled back in the legislation. And so I hope that we can see something different happen here, something that's a little bit more positive so that the next iteration is a step towards a future that can make this work. But Sandali, I saw your hand go up.
2: Yeah, just to add to what you said about this coming out of Africa, something that stood out to me was a quote from the finance minister who said, there's a common narrative that sub-Saharan African countries are often one step behind when it comes to adapting New technology. This time we can actually say that our country is one step ahead. And this is really interesting to me, A, because they chose making Bitcoin legal tender as the way to show the world that they're adapting new technology, which is an interesting move considering, like you said, 11% of its population has access to the internet. Another thing is how is this all going to look? How is this going to pan out, right? It's just like a mess waiting to happen, in my opinion.
1: So we'll be moving on to the next story in just a second. But I think that one thing that's interesting about this that we haven't really heard anything about yet, but which we may and I'll be watching very closely, is, you know, El Salvador did what they did. uh, And in part, what that gave them was a lot of attention from the cryptocurrency and specifically the Bitcoin community and a lot of development, a lot of investment, a lot of companies opening offices. All of that stuff happened to help the government build out the infrastructure in order to do that. That could be, I mean, that 11%, uh, you know, penetration that you're talking about, Jen, you know, that could actually be seen as an opportunity for companies to go in and to actually help the uh, help the government to roll out these services. And again, you know, if we see something like that, then I think that that may be a reason beyond anything else. is just that this could spur adoption in the Central African Republic in a way that lacking something like this, there isn't really a reason for people in the cryptocurrency community to make those types of investments. And certainly the cryptocurrency community is looking for use cases and looking for places to really try out a lot of these ideas. So I think it could, again, like, you know, we're we're, we're reading minds here at this point, but I think that that's an interesting dynamic that it'll be, you know, we'll be watching to see if it develops over time. Jen, you've got the next story.
3: Yeah, well, speaking of watching to see how things develop, a study by the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research reported that six out of 10 Salvadorans quit using the Shiva wallet after getting the $30 Bitcoin incentive. So the report said that the median user reports no ATM withdrawals and no payments sent or received in Bitcoin in a given month. So we've been talking a lot about watching and seeing, right? How is Bitcoin being adopted in El Salvador given this new legislation? And now we're seeing that six out of 10 people that were surveyed, 1800 households were surveyed face-to-face and 60% of them said they got their $30 worth of Bitcoin and then they quit. Adam, were you surprised to hear this?
1: There's two parts of this story that are interesting to me. The first part is that I uh, was actually surprised it was so high. uh, so, So high in terms of people who continued to use the application. You're talking about something, again, like, El Salvador made the choice to take Bitcoin and to make it legal tender in a way that makes it easier to spend. But in reality, over the last five years, Bitcoin has really become a token that's really more about saving for the future. And that future is one where people think that the value will be higher. So in practice, it's actually not used very often as a means to actually conduct commerce. And so the the sort of push to do that was interesting. The other part of it that was interesting, of course, is that this study came out of a U.S. government institution phrased sort of the results in such a way to cast it in the most negative light possible. But actually, it's a pretty positive result. If you look at, you know, penetration uh, in terms of cryptocurrency use, people holding cryptocurrency, stuff like that, it's far less than 40% in the vast majority of countries that you uh, were you to survey that. So actually, another way to have titled this same data set Would have been El Salvador has greatest penetration and adoption of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, or just Bitcoin, you know, compared to any other country in the world. But that's exactly right. It's like this is not data coming from neutral sources. This is data that's designed to paint a narrative. And whatever data they get back, they're going to use it to try and paint the picture that they want to paint. And so it's not surprising to see that, but it's always funny to see that because again like the uh, the clown makeup meme always comes to mind with this stuff these people are supposed to be experts they're not supposed to care what the results (laughs) are they're just supposed to tell us what reality is and increasingly you see this sort of taking sides and picking who's supposed to be right as opposed to just following the data which is again to me laughable sunday what do you think
2: yeah i agree with you on the way that the data was presented you know you see the story you want to see, right? But one of the things that I I thought about when I saw this number, and again, you know, it might have been because of the way it was presented. One of the appealing things about Bitcoin is that it has nothing to do with the government or politicians. It's considered as an alternative, mostly as a better alternative, maybe. And because, and it's considered so because of certain freedoms, it promises. So to have like a politician kind of say, hey, Start using this. Get ready to use Bitcoin might have turned a bit of the, that shine off for folks, I'm guessing. Bitcoin is used as a tool of like rebellion almost in some ways. And I wonder if people in El Salvador are now not using Bitcoin as a way of standing up against the president. I don't know. That might be just me. But there weren't a lot of people who were super into the idea when we first kind of revealed The news and this was all happening so fast. There were some protests. So yeah, I wonder if they, you know, took the thirty dollars and said, "Yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm done with Bitcoin. (laughs) See you
3: later." Jen, what do you think? I saw Adam's hand go up, and then I'll chime in. Oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't see
2: that.
1: Uh, Oh, it's it's all good. I'll, I'll keep it quick. You know, I mean, Bitcoin is neutrality embodied in a form of technology, right? So. There was a uh, I'm going to call it a kerfluffle last year when, uh, you know, uh, there were some concerns when El Salvador and specifically uh, El Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele, you know, announced this, passed it with a government that his party basically had entire control over and then sort of just jammed it into reality over the course of a couple of months. And people were like, well, but that's not the Bitcoin way. But actually, ironically, that is the Bitcoin way, because the Bitcoin way is whatever it is that you want to do with it. You can do it with it. So, if you wanted to use it, use Bitcoin in the most authoritarian way possible, right? You could do that. And that would still be the Bitcoin way because the whole thing is that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a terrorist. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, like a freedom fighter, right? And really the difference between those two things is just what perspective and what narrative are you particularly paying attention to. The whole point is, is that it's a system that everybody can use. And that's in sharp contrast to a system like the US dollar reserve, you know, global reserve currency and kind of global banking system. Where we've recently seen, as a result of the Ukraine war, uh, Russia basically disintermediated from both uh, reserves that it holds within the system and also with its ability to actually make payments to other members of the system, not because there's any sort of technical problem with their ability to use it, but simply because it's a a supposedly neutral value transfer system that's been used to try to extract political outcomes. So that's kind of where I come back to on this is that certainly there are right ways to use this technology, in my opinion. And those ways are you let people make choices, you educate them, you create a level playing field and you enforce the rules fairly. But that's not really the world that we live in today. We live in a world where everybody makes their own set of rules. And to the extent that you can uh, use power to try and control what people think, control what people talk about, control what people can do, you're probably going to do that, dressing it up as well as you can as someone in power. So again, like, I think that all of these examples are great because they represent different expressions of the neutrality of Bitcoin, and they can all happen at the same time within the same system. And that's beautiful to me. So I appreciate I got a little bit philosophical there, but that's how I think about this. And so El Salvador is doing El Salvador. And I imagine that the Central African Republic will do the Central African Republic. And when the United States eventually comes around and starts to seriously look at this, not as a form of competition, but as a neutral technology that they just, need to stop fighting uh, surreptitiously, right, and just accept this is a part of the technology and the monetary landscape moving forward, they'll do it in their own way too. And I'm in support of all of that. I did not keep it quick. Sorry, Jen, go ahead. (laughs) You didn't.
3: You really didn't. I'm just going to quickly add some facts to suddenly what you were saying. There was a footnote in the report that said the Salvadorans that were surveyed said that they didn't really trust the system and they didn't trust Bitcoin but they did want that $30. Now, the Shiva wallet is a custodied wallet, and there are rules around what you could have done with that $30. You weren't allowed to just cash it out. You were supposed to to spend it or, or, or send it to someone so that Bitcoin could move throughout society. And so what they did was they would send it to a friend and then have that friend go to an ATM and cash it out. And that's how the wallets kind of remained stagnant after that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I think it points again to suddenly what you were saying earlier, about education right it's like you don't trust your government for one and now the government is instilling this technology and is really supportive of it and so that distrust kind of transfers onto the technology which should be there to do good i also wanted to add quickly before we move on to the next story two little tidbits from the report that i thought were really interesting it said five percent of salvadorans paid taxes using bitcoin And 20% of firms accept Bitcoin. And I thought those were very high numbers, higher than I was expecting. So I think contrary to the report headline, we're going to see some interesting information come out of what is happening in El Salvador that will inform how the rest of the world operates. But we have our last story. Adam, you're taking us to Ethereum land.
1: I am. Thank you, Jen. So the Ethereum Foundation is coming under some pressure following the release of an annual report which disclosed that nearly 20% of the Foundation's considerable assets are held in, quote, non-crypto assets and investments, end quote. In total, the Foundation holds more than $300 million in that category, while the remaining war chest is made up of $1.3 billion worth of crypto, almost all of which is in Ether. As a longtime observer of the space, this seems a little bit like a silly story to me, but what do you think, Sundly?
2: yeah i agree with you i don't really see what the big deal is here i mean it's always good to diversify and given you know ethereum's history it's had a you know tough economic history lots of volatility there and making sure you're able to kind of get through a rough patch should it occur is just good sense i think it's interesting that it has only 11 million in other crypto is that right Like, if you weren't sure about them having faith in Ethereum, that should be the thing that reassures your suspicions. (laughs) They're all in on ETH just also maybe being smart. And we don't know what these non-crypto investments are, right? And also, like, we don't like to talk about it too much, but crypto is still very new and still growing its influence in markets. So... It's still in the early stages of an integration into, you know, the global financial network. So this is both unsurprising and I think astute on their part. I'm more interested about their switch to uh, proof of stake, which is coming up. But I'm going to pass it to Jen first.
3: I think it's great to think that we live in a world where every everything and everyone and every institution can operate on crypto. But the reality is we don't, and so it makes sense that they're are non-crypto assets in their treasury, right? So this is very much, again, a non-story for me as well. It just makes sense to diversify. It's smart. I think that maybe we would be a little bit more worried if the treasury was only made up of crypto, just given its volatility and and the, the newness of it. So Adam, you're someone who's been in the space for so long. Why is everyone so gung-ho on, on like not having fiat. We still live in a world that operates on fiat. I'm sorry to say, I know you're watching a show on CoinDesk and we all love crypto. We still need fiat for now.
1: Yeah, no. Again, uh, kind of echo what uh, everyone else is saying in that it makes sense to have a rainy day fund. I think one of the things that was most surprising to me about this story is how much money they have. They have an incredible amount of money, $1.6 billion in the war chest, including $300 in non-crypto assets and investments. That is a huge amount of money. And they even could keep it all in crypto at that rate, right? Because if you have $1.6 billion in Ether, well, even if Ether goes down to a tenth of its current price, which seems reasonably unlikely given current dynamics, you still have a ridiculous amount of money better capitalized than the vast majority of companies that are out there even some are publicly traded that was kind of interesting to me is just how much money the foundation has and given how much money they have why aren't they spending more of it faster if you have that much money at current ether prices and your thesis is that ether is going to become a very very important systemic asset on a global basis especially as we move towards the diminished you know issuance schedule that will come with proof of stake and the kind of continued uh, push towards all of that. I mean, seriously, like you could be offering $100 million worth of grants per year and not even really, you know, like pulling from the bucket at all. That was interesting. You know, when I think back to the early days of Bitcoin, Bitcoin did not have that sort of support at all. There was a Bitcoin foundation, but the Bitcoin foundation, you had to choose to buy a membership in it And then that membership fee was what gave the company actual money as well as some donations from companies in the space. So just that I thought was really fascinating. One other point in terms of why are people upset about this? People are upset about this because cryptocurrency is a team sport. And so to the extent that you do anything in the space in a public fashion, which the foundation very much is, is to the extent that you are signaling to the rest of the space something about what you think. And so to not have everything in crypto, signals that you're hedging your bets. And so if you're hedging your bets, it means that you're not fully committed to the narrative. So from a business perspective, and you know, as an entrepreneur in the space, it's much better to have some cash on hand in case crypto really goes against you. I think it's a little bit different when you have this type of money. But still, uh, I think that that's what it is, is it the signaling, not the reality that people are responding to here.
3: Just imagining that like Scrooge McDuck meme, and just money flying everywhere that's what this treasury is to me it's a lot of money (laughs) a lot of money yeah i mean i think we should wrap it there it's a lot of money there's a lot of money guys (laughs) too much we're counting only in billions yeah Yeah. (laughs) from now on this coin desk we're just counting in (laughs) billions (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, guys. Well, that was a fun show for a Wednesday in the three box. You are watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. And if you're listening to us, you are listening to the Coindesk podcast network uh, everywhere where podcasts are available. If you love Coindesk TV, tune in at 3 p.m. for All About Bitcoin with Christine Lee, live from the Bahamas. Every time I say that, I get a little bit jealous, but but the Coindesk <laughs> team is down there and they're doing a lot of great work. So check out Coindesk.com and tune in at 3 to see Christine in that wonderful sunny weather. That's it for us, guys. Bye.
1: Thanks.
2: You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you, so if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com,
0: subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. sounds like progress, right? With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.